Chapter 6 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 Maldonado Bay. We sailed out of the harbor on December the 21st, the city looking very beautiful from the sea in the early morning. There was but little wind, and we progressed but slowly. It happened that the Norsemen steamed out on the same day. So, ten hours after our departure, she came up with us. The captain stopped his vessel and repeated his invitation as to the tow, adding, as a further inducement, that we should thus reach Maldonado by Christmas Day, and we could all pass that festive season together. We gladly accepted his offer, so the Norseman lowered a boat, and we soon got a tow-line to each of her quarters. It was as well that we did get this tow, for now that Andrews had left, we were only four on board. Of these, Jourdain was laid up below with a slight fever, I was far from well, recovering from the same, and the boy had also been suffering from a sort of bilious fever for some days. Under these circumstances, Captain Lacey sent on board of us one of his black sailors to lend a hand at steering. He and the boy took one watch during Jourdain's illness, Arnaud and myself the other. Steering a small vessel when towing fast requires some care, so, as usual under similar circumstances, I had to do all of the steering in my watches. Arnaud, however, was not allowed to be idle. He was kept very constantly at the pumps, for we were towing so fast through the short seas, ten knots an hour at times, that much water came on board and found its way below through the hatch of the sailroom. We had not been towing long before we parted one of the warps. The steamer stopped and lowered a boat with another. This boat was manned by crewmen, who kept time to their oars as they came off with a queer, dirge-like song. The words of this song were delightfully simple, consisting of a constant repetition of the monosyllable bow. Some of my readers may not know what crewmen are. Well... They are a superior race of black men who inhabit a certain strip along the west coast of Africa. They are all boatmen by profession and are engaged by European vessels for service in the unhealthy oil rivers and other parts where work in the sun is perilous for the white man. Excellent fellows they are, with far more intellectual cast of countenance than any of the West Indian or Brazilian blacks. These they despise and will hold no communion with, for the crewman boasts that he is not only a freeman, but the descendant of freemen. He is certainly a superior being to the ordinary negro, faithful and honest. Curious names these jolly blacks take to themselves. On the Norsemen we had Silver, Maintop, Rope Yarm, Jibboom, and Zulu. This latter was so called because he was taken to London to impersonate one of the Zulus exhibited at the aquarium. He there enjoyed himself amazingly, and still receives letters from an antiquarian barmaid. Zulu was the man sent on board of us by Captain Lacey. Rather funny that we should ship an antiquarian Farini Zulu as a hand on the falcon. As the sea increased a good deal on our second day out, it became necessary for the Norsemen to diminish her speed to eight knots, so as to avoid straining the yacht, which towed very heavily. We had now crossed Capricorn and were once more out of the tropics. The difference of latitude soon made itself apparent. The wind blew from the south, cold and bracing after its passage from Antarctic seas. It was a very great change after sultry real, 
and we found pea-jackets necessary for the first time. The distance that the Norsemen proposed to tow us was above 900 miles. The experiences of the voyage were such as to make me resolve never under any circumstances to undertake anything of the kind again. The Norsemen had been compelled to go easy and stop so often in order to enable us to put fresh chafing gear on the hawsers and to get a new tow-line on board when one was carried away, an incident which occurred thrice, so violent were the sudden jerks at times, that on the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, we were still so far from Maldonado as to render all chance of eating our Christmas dinner in port very remote. This day, a nasty short sea was running that was continually filling our deck fore and aft. The vessel pitched about with extraordinary quickness, Showers of spray came over the bows constantly, half-drowning the man at the tiller, who alone stayed on deck. Everybody and everything was wet through. Poor Zulu, unaccustomed to the cold and wet, looked very miserable indeed when his turn used to come around to steer. No doubt he regretted his native wilds in the well-warmed London aquarium, where he was wont to raise his terrific Farini war-cry, and hurl his assegai into the targets, surrounded by admiring pale-faced damsels. The poor fellow was laid up for three days after his experience of falcon life. About 2 p.m. I was at the teller. A confused sea was running at the time, so that it was very difficult to steer the vessel. And now a serious accident that I had for a long time foreseen as probable occurred. I must explain that the falcon's bowsprit runs straight over the top of her stem amidships, and that the forestay leads to the bowsprit gammoning iron, an exceptionally strong one, of course, instead of to the stem, as is the usual method. I do not know whose idea this arrangement was, but it is obviously a very bad one. Not only is the most important support to the mast, the forestay, fitted in an insecure fashion, but the bowsprit cannot be taken wholly on board, as the mainmast is in the way of so doing. Thus, we had a good many feet of bowsprit overboard when the heel of it was jammed up against the mast. The result was, after one heavier pitch than usual, and a shower of water that half blinded me and took away my breath for a moment, I saw with consternation that all the main rigging and shrouds were flying about quite slack. I knew in a moment what had occurred. One of the hawsers had got under the bowsprit close to the bow and wrenched the gammoning iron and stout iron band right out of the stem, thus carrying away our forestay as well. I called all hands on deck and hailed a Norseman, which at once stopped and lowered a boat to lend us assistance. We found that a large piece had been wrenched off our stem in addition to other damage, so we were in a fine pickle. The bowsprit itself was not broken. But a more serious mishap was now to follow, which all but put a termination to the Falcon's cruise altogether by sending her to the bottom of the South Atlantic. The Norsemen had stopped. Being to windward, we drifted on to her. Seeing that we were getting too near, we shouted to the officer in charge to take a few revolutions ahead occasionally so as to keep clear of us. As soon as he attempted to do so, it was found that one of the tow lines had got round her screws so that she could not move but lay helplessly rolling about in the seas. In a few moments we had drifted right down on her, and we were foul of each other. 
Our rigging then got entangled in the stock of her anchor, and thus having secured us, she locked us in her embrace and, like a great sea monster as she is, deliberately proceeded to crush us to pieces. She was rolling heavily at the time, and with every roll the stock of her great anchor and her iron sides came down on us with pitiless weight. First, our mainmast was nearly wrenched out of us. Then the great black mass of the ocean steamer leaned over us, bending in our davits and crushing our beautiful dinghy into matchwood. Then another great lurch, and the stock of her starboard anchor coming down between our port shrouds carried away all the ratlines, about ten feet of bulwark, and threatened to stave in our decks. Then our bowsprit went. We were now right across her bows, a most perilous situation, for over the bows of a telegraph vessel hangs an enormous iron machine weighing many tons, used, I believe, for winding in the electric cable. This rose and fell above us like a battering ram as a steamer pitched in the great seas. It was indeed a bad quarter of an hour for us that. Not a merry way of passing Christmas Eve. We tried our best to disentangle our rigging from her anchors and to shove clear of her, a difficult and even dangerous undertaking. One plucky crewman was very nearly crushed while helping us. At last, almost miraculously, we fell clear of her, and setting a bit of sail drifted some half-mile away to leeward, where the poor old falcon lay a dismal and disheveled wreck upon the waters. The remains of our dinghy oars and other articles were floating away, visible at times on the summit of the waves, a pitiable sight. But it was no time for lamentation. It was important to repair the damage as far as possible without delay. On inspection, we rejoiced to find that, to all appearance, only our upper works had suffered. The body of the vessel was as sound as ever. We passed our chain through the two house pipes, set up our forestay to it as well as we could, and got everything shipshape again. In the meantime, the Norsemen managed to get the hawser clear of her screw, so steaming down to us, took us once more in tow. We had a most uncomfortable time of it this Christmas Eve. The wind and sea had risen considerably, and it was very dark. I remember well what curious work it was when steering that night by the rising and falling stern light of the heavily pitching steamer. The motion of the falcon was at the time the most violently quick I have ever experienced. We were constantly jumped off our feet while steering. At regular intervals, the vessel would take five or six terribly rapid rolls in succession, rolling her gunnels under and filling her decks right up with water, healing to such an angle as made even capsizing seem quite a possible contingency at times. Then she would pitch as violently as she had rolled, and we expected to see the mainmast chucked out over her bow at any moment. Water breakers and other articles broke adrift, floated on deck, and flew about wildly with the frantic leaps of the little craft. Down in the cabin, the water was a foot over the flooring and washing over the bunks, drenching everything, notwithstanding that someone was always at the pump. Everyone was wet, cold, and miserable, and bruised, too, with banging about against which no sea legs availed. It was rather an anxious time, for had the weather been a little worse, the steamer would have been obliged to slip us, no agreeable prospect in our half-wrecked state. So passed our merry Christmas Eve. But when Christmas Day broke, there came a change. It was a lovely morning, bright and bracing. 
The wind had moderated considerably. The sea, too, had gone down, so the Norsemen increased her speed to make up for lost time. Towards dinner time, the steamer stopped, and Captain Lacey sent a boat with a fresh hawser to us and an invitation to partake of the orthodox roast beef and plum pudding on board his vessel. He lent us two Madagascar Negroes to steer the Falcon in the meanwhile. After the wet and cold of the last few days, we thoroughly enjoyed our Christmas dinner in the comfortable saloon of the steamer. In the evening, we returned to the Falcon once more to renew our duties. Throughout the night, the sea was smooth, and all went well. On the morning of the 26th of December, we perceived the loom of land on our starboard side, the coast of Uruguay. On nearing it, we were enabled to discern what manner of country this was that we had now reached. The climate, the color of the clear sky, and the aspect of the vegetation showed us that we had indeed left the tropics. Very different all appeared after Torrid Rio, 1,000 miles to the northward. It was a low shore with sandy dunes and hills of no great altitude in the background, a desert-looking country where thistles and aloes seemed especially to thrive. Of ill repute, too, is all this wild coast from here to the Brazilian frontier and a terror to mariners. The currents of the ocean hereabouts are powerful and inconstant. There are few landmarks and disasters to vessels are frequent. On the shore, among the surf, one can perceive the skeletons of many ill-fated ships as one coasts along the dreary sandbanks. And woe betide the mariners who are wrecked on this inhospitable land, for the only inhabitants of it are wild gauchos, professional and skillful wreckers when not employed in the almost as lucrative pursuit of pillaging and ravaging all over their native country under the banner of one or the other of those rival guerrilla chieftains who are ever contesting who shall next be the chief magistrate and arch-robber of poor revolutionary Uruguay. These land sharks are bold in the extreme in their malpractices, and of course commit all sorts of atrocities with absolute impunity, for the government cannot be troubled with inquiry into such little peccadilloes as wrecking and piracy. These brave gauchos must be humored, or they will join the other side in politics and lend their lances to a rival cutthroat. At about sunset, we were in sight of our port. As we approached the land, the whole vessel was enveloped in a dense cloud of dragonflies, which completely covered our rigging. That very common phenomenon in the river plate, a mirage, was observable along the whole coast. All the inland hills seemed to have turned upside down and these floated at some height above the plain, midway in a band of lovely pink sky. We rounded Point Esta, and sailing inside Lobos Islands, famous for its many seals, entered Maldonado Bay. This little harbor seemed but little protected, should the wind choose to blow hard from seaward. It is but a shallow bay, surrounded by sandbanks, with one little island called Goriti, overgrown with wild asparagus, and inhabited by rabbits alone in the center of it. It was here that HMS Agamemnon, Nelson's old vessel, was lost. The town or village of Maldonado is situated a few miles from the shore and is hidden from it by the sand hills. Only a few little houses are to be seen on the beach at the extremity of the bay. Not a very prepossessing spot, 
but Captain Lacey promised us plenty of sport on the shore by the lagunas which lie beyond the sand hills. Partridges, snipes, teat, geese, etc., are to be found here in amazing numbers at times, he said. Just before sunset, we perceived a dismasted vessel far out to sea, a derelict, evidently, for she had no signals flying. Unfortunately, a mist came on just then, or the Norsemen would have steamed after her and brought her in. A wind arose in the night that carried her far away before morning. The Norsemen put to sea again the day after our arrival and proceeded towards Chui, as the submarine cable required repairing somewhere thereabouts. She did not return for two days. This time we spent in repairing as much as possible the damage the collision had inflicted on us. We naturally were desirous of going on shore and having a look at the country, but of course could not do so until we had received practique. We waited twelve hours and no one came off to us. There was no sign of life anywhere. There were two small craft anchored in the bay, but no one was on board of them. The shore might be a bit of the central Sahara for loneliness. Twenty-four hours passed, and still no one. At last, a solitary horseman appeared on the summit of a sand hill and looked at us. Hope revived in our breasts. But after remaining a few seconds only, he galloped away again. Forty-eight hours passed away, and we waxed impatient. We hoisted all manner of signals, but no one paid the slightest attention to them. Where were all the Maldonadans? Had they gone away revolutionizing, or seeing from afar that imposing brass gun of ours? Had they taken the peaceable falcon for a pirate, and betaken themselves in terror to the inner wilds? These two days a southwest wind blew fresh and squally right into the bay and brought into it a sea that made us far from comfortable at our anchorage. Waxing impatient, I took the collapsible dinghy and went off to the desert island of Goriti to shoot rabbits. Here I made the acquaintance of the only inhabitant, a sociable horse, who followed me about everywhere, walked on when I walked on, sat down when I sat down, and, standing on the beach, gave me a plaintive farewell neigh when I ultimately rode off. Of rabbits I saw no traces save their habitations. They, too, I suppose, had gone revolutionizing. There were several old iron cannons lying about on the island, for it was strongly fortified in the days of the Spanish when there was a viceroyalty of Buenos Aires. On the third day, the Norsemen came in again, and at last the inhabitants took notice of us, for a boat came off with a gentleman most gorgeously uniformed and much sabred, who politely told us that he was the captain of the port. Hearing that we had come from Rio, he gave us two days' quarantine. But, I suggested, we have already been two days here. Ah, indeed, he replied, then it is well. Your quarantine is over. We went on shore, scampered up the sand hills, and were surprised, on reaching their summit, to behold on the other side a wild but pleasant-looking country. An undulating pompous of grass and thistles, aloes and cactus, lay between us and the distant hills, diversified with little lakes, bogs, and sandy wastes. In the foreground was Maldonado Town, a small congregation of whitewashed, flat-roofed houses with a street or two in which it seemed as if no man ever walked. We were introduced to the aristocracy of the place, 
first, to a storekeeper, who was also a commandant or something of the kind, next to a portly major general in the Uruguayan army, who was also a butcher, and to an ex-high admiral of the Uruguayan fleet, who is willing to pilot us to Montevideo in consideration of a small gratuity. Truly a Republican country. The latter grandee is an ex-admiral at present because his politics are not those of the party now in power. For with a change in the government of a South American republic, everyone goes out of office. Admirals, generals, telegraph clerks, policemen, crossing sweepers, to make room for the friends of the new presidents, and the friends of those friends, and the friends of all their sisters, their cousins, and their aunts, and so on. One rises and falls pretty rapidly out here. Admiral today, ordinary pilot tomorrow. We stayed two days more in Maldonado Bay, and had some pleasant rides over the country with the officers of the Norsemen. But I cannot say that we shot quite so many partridges, snipes, etc., as we anticipated. However, we had a very good time of it, thanks to our friends on the Norsemen and on shore. On December the 31st, we got up anchor and sailed for Montevideo, which is about 70 miles from Maldonado. We took the ex-admiral with us as a pilot, not that a pilot was really necessary, but the old gentleman seemed anxious to come with us and was very companionable and jovial in disposition. We were now in the estuary of the Rio de la Plata, for the limit of the river and the ocean is held to be a line drawn between Maldonado and the Cabo San Antonio, 150 miles across. At Montevideo, the river is 64 miles wide. At Buenos Aires, 210 miles higher up than Maldonado, it is 34 miles wide. All this gigantic estuary is obstructed by shoals and sandbanks. The depth of water is hardly anywhere upwards of three fathoms. Luckily, the bottom is generally of soft mud. Hence, there is little risk to a vessel that runs ashore unless the weather be bad. But, unfortunately, bad weather is very common indeed off the river plate. It is a region of storms and extraordinary electric disturbance. The pampero, the storm wind from the pampas, is frequent and blows with great violence often being, indeed, a true hurricane in its fury. The ocean tides do not affect to any great extent the waters of the river plate, but strong sea winds cause it to rise considerably. The water is fresh almost as far as Montevideo, where, indeed, it is occasionally drunk on the vessels in the roads, so slightly brackish is it. A desolate waste of choppy, muddy waves flowing between dark mud banks with here and there a little floating islands of lilies and trees drifting seawards from the great rivers of the interior, such as the mouth of the La Plata, the widest river of the world, and the one which, with the exception of the Amazon, discharges the greatest volume of water into the ocean. At daybreak on the 1st of January, we were in sight of Montevideo. From afar off, we observed that there were many men of war of different nations and sizes in the harbor and in the roads, some twenty at least. Farthest to seaward of all, we perceived a British squadron of five huge vessels at anchor. These we soon recognized as the Bacante and the four other men of war composing the flying squadron, now bound on a voyage around the world with the two sons of the Prince of Wales. 
Montevideo presents a very pleasing appearance from the sea, looking very much like an eastern city with its whitewashed, low, flat-roofed houses. Like an eastern city, it looked very clean and bright from a distance. We afterwards found that, unlike an eastern city, it proved as clean and bright on closer inspection. We came to an anchor well up the little bay which answers as an apology for a harbor here, a very poor harbor in bad weather, as we afterwards found, and hoisted the yellow flag for the health officer. When that functionary came off, he expressed great dissatisfaction at the conduct of his colleague in Maldonado. Two days' quarantine is insufficient for a vessel coming from Rio. You must sail to Flores and pass three more days off that island before I can permit you to land here. But now a steam launch with some other gorgeous officer came off, and, hearing how matters stood, took our part, and argued that in the case of so small a vessel with so few men on board, it was hardly necessary to inflict the full allowance of quarantine. After some parley, the first doctor gave in, and we were granted practique, to our great delight, for three days off Flores was not a pleasant prospect. Montevideo was having a good time of it with all these men of war in the roads, no fewer than nine of which were British. Bullfights, masked balls, hells, and other dissipations were not wanting to relieve the mariner of his hard-earned cash. They told me that there were frequently 5,000 men of war's men and marines on shore at a time. A walk through the streets and squares of the capital of Uruguay soon showed us how very different were these people that we were now among from the Brazilians in every respect. No two cities could be less alike than these two capitals of neighboring states. Not here were the lofty houses of Rio, but clean streets of one-storied, glaring white houses built in the style of a Pompeian dwelling. A square, flat-roofed building with an open courtyard or patio in the center, under which all of the rooms open, a fountain and a flower garden in the patio. Towards the street, the windows, if any, small and heavily barred with iron. Such is the residence of a South American Spaniard, a retiring sort of a dwelling, shutting itself jealously from the outer world with a muscle-man-like love of seclusion. The populace, too, how different from that of a Brazilian city. No Negroes here and no ugly-looking Portuguese. <laughs> but handsome and dignified Spaniards, with a good deal of Indian blood in the veins of the lower orders of them. Cleanest of cities is Montevideo, with straight streets cutting each other at right angles in the American chessboard fashion. In the evening of New Year's Day, we visited the fine Plaza de la Independencia, where an excellent military band was playing. Here, we were enabled to study the different orders of the populace. The ladies floated by with stately Spanish walk, looking well in their black silk dresses and mantillas. But why will every South American lady so besmear her face with powder, however good her complexion be? Officers of the army strutted by in gorgeous uniforms and with a clash of sabers on the pavement. A motley crowd of the lower orders loafed about. Bosques, Italians, Greeks and the native gauchos in their barbaric but becoming costume. Here was a group of British blue jackets slightly overcome by Kana. The native soldiers were everywhere, dressed in their hideous parody of Zouave uniforms, 
and here were two of the Spanish bullfighters in their picturesque, off-duty dress and pigtails. Smart, wiry, neat-cut fellows they were, and rather foppish in their general get-up. The young native swells hung around them admiringly, were proud of their acquaintance, were delighted when allowed to sit at the same table as the matador at a cafe and treat him to champagne. In short, courted them and made much of them, much in the same way as English gentlemen did prize-fighters not so long back, and the young Roman patrician the crack gladiators of his day when he wanted to be considered as a fast man about town. End of chapter 6